listener exclusive. The Australian music industry has lost a true icon with the passing of Glenn Wheatley just a few weeks after his 74th birthday. Wheatley died on Tuesday, February 1st, after complications from contracting COVID. While he was vaccinated, he was immunocompromised and passed away with his family by his side. Glenn will be remembered as a titan of the industry who began playing rock music before enjoying even more success behind the scenes. I knew the ups and the downs of, of what it's like to be a performer. And all I could do for my artists that I was managing at the time was do for them what I would, would have liked to have done for me. Simple. His legacy as a talent manager includes working on not one, but two of the highest selling Australian albums of all time that spent over a year at number one on the local charts between them. In 1986, his client and friend John Farnham released Whispering Jack which spent 25 weeks at number one on the Australian chart. Then 17 years later, he launched the then unknown Delta Goodrum's career. In 2003, her debut album, Innocent Eyes, spent 29 weeks on top. Between them, those two albums have sold close to 2 million copies in Australia alone. Remarkable figures and a testament to Wheatley's ability to spot and nurture talent. Famously, Wheatley was so convinced of the potential of Whispering Jack, he secured the $150,000 needed to record the album by mortgaging his own house. I'll tell you all about how Glenn steered the almighty comeback of Farnham in the 80s, just one notch in the incredible career of an incredible man. I I wanted to cry because I saw John came out dressed in a tuxedo and playing to a half-filled room with a four-piece band that couldn't play. Glenn Wheatley left rock stardom behind to revolutionise music management in Australia. He pioneered the path of Australian artists, finding international success with Little River Band, secured multi-million dollar global record deals and was there for the birth of FM radio in Australia, with the format remaining one of his many passions. However, for all his wild success, the bold entrepreneur would also suffer crashing business failures including winding up in jail during the lowest point of his life. I got myself into a bit of a mess, and if I can get myself into the mess that I did, which I'll talk about, then anybody can. Born in 1948, Glenn Dawson Wheatley grew up in Queensland and left school at 15 for an apprenticeship working in photography and printing. At the time, he was playing bass guitar in a Brisbane band called Bay City Union. They would be famous for their singer Matt Taylor, who went on to front iconic blues band Chain. Wheatley may have been on stage, but even as a teenager, he had a business brain. With the band trying to get work wherever they could, Wheatley started the St George Club at a church hall in Brisbane. The club became wildly popular for hosting rock bands, leaving a 17-year-old Wheatley doing double duty on the door, then joining the band before returning to count the takings. He was quickly cashed up, which led to clashes with the city's older, more established nightclub kings. Wheatley relocated to Balaclava in Melbourne with Bay City Union, the band moving into a street where another rock group were living. Now that led him to joining that group, the Masters Apprentices, fronted by the late Jim Keyes. During his four years with the band, they recorded the classic hits, Turn Up Your Radio and Because I Love You, recorded at Abbey Road Studios in London, in 1971. Here's Jim Keyes on their signature hit. I guess it epitomised everything at the time. I mean, the lyrics particularly uh, 
sort of expressed a feeling of um, that we'd left everybody behind in Australia. But then the chorus, the do what you want to do, be what you want to be thing, implied that although we'd left it all behind and, and we're starting again, there was hope there for the future, you know. Their incredible success also fired up Wheatley's business brain again. At a sold-out show with a band made just $200, he calculated promoters were making $30,000. Here's John Farnham on that moment. The Masters Apprentices were doing a show at Festival Hall in Brisbane and people were running around the place like chickens with their head cut off saying, oh, you've got a bigger crowd than the Beatles. This is unbelievable. You've got a bigger crowd than the Beatles. And, of course, that got through to the Masters and they're running around saying, yeah, we've got a bigger crowd than the Beatles. This is sensational. How much are we getting for tonight, said Wheatley. Somebody said $200. He said, what? And that was the day he turned around and decided to become the band's manager. Wheatley insisted on a door deal where bands wouldn't receive a basic flat rate fee, but a larger percentage of the take if they'd drawn big crowds. He soon sacked the master's manager and ran their finances as well as playing bass. He quickly learned the art of business and started his own band booking company, Drum. At the time, he clashed with another young rock entrepreneur, Michael Gadinsky, who felt Wheatley was stepping on his turf. But the masters had other goals. They won a trip to London via boat And despite giving it a crack in that market and that recording trip at the Beatles studio, they would never quite make it. Wheatley stayed on and found work at a management company in London who guided the careers of David Bowie and glam rockers Sweet, then relocated to the company's American arm. What he saw there meant he knew he could find an Australian band who could work in the US market. That led to Wheatley managing the career of Melbourne group Little River Band in 1974. I spoke to Glenn on Triple M last year, who told me being an artist gave him a crucial insight when it came to being a manager. It helped me everywhere. It helped me with Little River Band, with Australian yeah. Crawl, you know, with John Farnham. I mean, the, the, what I was doing for those guys was what I would have liked to have done for me. Yeah. So it was easy. And I'd been there. I'd been on stage. I'd been there on stage when you when you die, when you when you don't when you don't go over. Mm. I've been on stage when you kill them, when you when you got them in your hand, you know. So I knew the ups and the downs of, of what it's like to be a performer. And all I could do for my artists that I was managing at the time was do for them what I would, would have liked to have done for me. Simple. Wheatley's global vision for Little River Band included insisting the band begin heavy touring in the US, where they would play with the likes of the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac and Steely Dan. While he initially struggled to get an American record label interested in the band, his hustle paid off when Wheatley secured a deal with the prestigious Capitol Records. The deal was worth over $8 million for four albums, unheard of for an Australian band at the time. Little River Band sold over 22 million albums in the US alone. 1978's Sleeper Catcher and 1979's First Under the Wire both sold over a million albums each on the first day of release in the States. They were also one of the first Australian bands to score gold and platinum albums in America. The hits included Helpers on Its Way, Lonesome Loser and Reminiscing. Wheatley had seen the power of FM radio in the US to break Little River Band and wanted to help launch the FM radio revolution in Australia. He scored the first commercial FM licence in Australia, launching Eon FM in 1980, later to rebrand as Triple M. Good morning, Melbourne. It's one past midnight. This is 92.3 EON FM. I'm Peter Grace. And this is the beginning of a long, long time. 
The first song played on air was the Eagles' New Kid in Town. The, the story about the FM was I broke Little Riverman America on FM radio yeah. and, and I was coming back to Australia and I'm still listening to 3XY. Yeah. All AM radio. So why don't we have FM radio? Yeah. So mate, for the next two years, I walked Parliament House carpet threadbare, trying to convince every politician I could run into why we needed to have FM radio in Australia. The problem was we'd given the FM band away 50 years ago to fire police and ambulance, the essential services. Yeah. So I just had to convince everybody, we should put the essential services up in UHF where they belong. Mm. We free up the FM band. We've got a whole new business. I finally convinced the government of that rationale, and so the tenders came out, and I won the first tender for Melbourne, uh, being Eon FM, and we were the first station, FM station, to go to air. I mean, we, and I wanted to be the first so badly, <laughs> and, and, and we, the, the, the studio was was lined with egg cartons held up with chicken wire, Whoa. and the smell of sol- and the smell of, smell of soldering irons was still rife in the air as we go into air. I just remember we were put together by alligator clips, you know, <laughs> but we got to air. We were the first to go to air, and Eon FM, I would later change its name to Triple M. Yeah. And uh, so the best memories I ever had was of Eon FM, and, and then changing it that day that we changed it to Triple M was monumental, and it will always be with me. He sold Eon for $36 million and eventually bought it back and other Triple M stations in 1986 before selling it again to Hoyts. But Wheatley would remain involved in his beloved radio business throughout his life. The cashed-up Wheatley also lost a fortune investing in Melbourne nightclub The Ivy following the crash of the Pyramid Building Society. After managing Farnham since 1980, that business brain of Wheatley kicked into overdrive when he plotted and pulled off the most remarkable comeback in Australian music history. With the baggage of his 60s and 70s career still an issue, no major record label wanted to sign John Farnham in the mid-80s. Wheatley mortgaged his house to secure the $150,000 to fund the recording of Whispering Jack, scouring the industry for the best songs he could find. Glenn spoke to Lee Rogers on the podcast, The Blank Canvas, in 2020 about the incredible resurrection of John Farnham. I I knew that we had the best singer in the country, I mean, I came back from America to see John and I saw him perform at Twin Towns in Coolangatta and um, I, I wanted to cry because I saw John came out dressed in a tuxedo and playing to a half-filled room with a four-piece band that couldn't play. They were the house band. And at one stage, halfway through the set, John turns his back to the audience, stops the band and says, guys, it's here, it's one. Two, three, four, and had to count them in and start all over again. I wanted to die. I mean, I thought, this is John Farnham. Uh, working with a dreadful band in, in, in this situation. I went backstage with him from that show, got his black tie suit, threw it in the scrap bin with all the slop bin, with all the, put all the food. I said, we're just going to rub you out, mate. We're going to start all over again. And that's what we did. We just started from the scratch. I got in the best band in the world. It was extraordinary. And we just had to get him contemporary again. But it wasn't enough for the record companies to sign him. They still wouldn't take a chance. So I mortgaged the house and proceeded to do Whispering Jack. It took us over 12 months because we painstakingly looked so hard to get every song had to be of merit to get on the album. And today I think that album still stacks up. And oddly enough, the last song that I found was You're the Voice. And that demo 
And I played it to John Hill and I just talked to each other and said, oh, my God, that's got John written all over this song. And we rearranged it, made our own version of it, and thank God we did. I mean, the album went on to, to sell 1.8 million albums. All the voice is still stacks up to this day is still the legend song uh, and again i had to pay for this thing i had to go right out in the limb i was sweating bullets farnham who was flat broke at the time set up a recording studio in the basement of his house in the melbourne suburb of bulleen the drum sound at the start of the song is a sample of a car door being slammed at that bulleen house the bass solo in the demo of that song was replaced with a bagpipe solo inspired by Farnham's favourite ACDC song, It's a Long Way to the Top. Here's John on You're the Voice. Such a great song. Such a great song. I, it, it came about two weeks before we went into the studio and Ross, Ross Fraser walked into my house and he said, I've just got this tape from Rondor, put it on, we'll see what it's like. And we put it on and like it blew us both away. It went on the top of the list and I turned to Ross and I said... This has got to have a bagpipe solo in it. For some reason, I heard the pipes in my head. And Ross looked at me and curled his lip. I thought he was doing Billy Idol impersonation. Well, it wasn't a very good one either. And uh, he says, not very rock and roll. I said, oh, no, no, come on, Ross, let's try it. So we tried it both ways, and fortunately it worked. But uh, it, it, it's such a great song. I felt like it was written for me. I'm Matty O'Gorman, and you're listening to Behind the Hits, diving into the epic life of Aussie music legend Glenn Wheatley. Before Glenn found himself in hot water and behind bars, he was on top of the world with the rebirth of John Farnham's soaring career. Farnham and Wheatley scored 10 Australian number one albums during their time working together, as well as breaking attendance records at arenas around the country. And both turned their careers around with a once in a lifetime album created through blood, sweat, tears and beers. Here's John talking about one of his lowest points, supported by his wife, Jill, before Whispering Jack took the world by storm. The day I was going to play it to the record company, we were going back into Metropolis Audio in Bank Street in South Melbourne down there, and uh, we were going to play it to the record company and, and, and the management and everyone involved. And honestly, she put me in the car because we'd had to sell everything. We were living in a rented house. We didn't own anything. We couldn't pay the butcher. We couldn't pay the, you know, we couldn't go to, we couldn't go to dinner. It was, it was really ugly there for a while. And uh, I was, seriously, I was in the feet position underneath the front seat while she drove crying like a, a baby. In his career, Wheatley also managed Australian Crawl, Pseudo Echo, Real Life, Kate Sobrano, Stephanie McIntosh and Delta Goodrum. Discovering her as a 13-year-old, Wheatley nurtured Goodrum's career, spending years preparing her for the music industry. He negotiated Goodrum's star-making role in Neighbours, which was used to launch her breakthrough hit, Born to Try. In 1992, Wheatley helped stage the Australian musical version of Jesus Christ Superstar, featuring Farnham, Kate Sobrano and John Stevens. It played over 80 arena dates across the country while the soundtrack album released on Wheatley Records sold over a quarter of a million copies, spending 10 weeks at number one. However, Wheatley, who'd spent his career pushing artists into the spotlight, found himself in the headlines for all the wrong reasons in 2007. He was found guilty of tax evasion and spent 10 months in jail before finishing his sentence with home detention. Wheatley opened up to the blank canvas about the biggest mistake of his career. Um, I took advice from my lawyer, what I thought was tax planning. It wasn't tax planning, it was basically tax avoidance. 
And so his planning program of me taking some money offshore into a bank account into Switzerland and then wanting to bring it back in as a loan was, in his view, tax planning. No, it's tax avoidance. And I got pinged, it was all under a thing called Operation Wickenby. And Operation Wickenby was chasing some of the biggest tax avoiders in the country. I was a minnow in the scheme of things, but unfortunately I had a brand, I had an image and I had a name that was important to the tax department to make an issue of. And unfortunately I became the pinup boy for the tax department on Operation Wickenby. I got more publicity than I deserved out of it and out of a small amount of money that I sent overseas on legal advice, it's not me trying to cover, I, I was guilty, I did it, but I thought I thought it was tax planning. I thought it was all basically above board, it wasn't. I end up going to court, I end up being convicted of tax avoidance and it was an extraordinary period of time for me to do that, I couldn't believe it. Glenn Wheatley going to jail, how did this ever happen? What went wrong here? It was tough being inside because I had a profile and every young guy that would come in, they'd all go looking for weekly. And a lot of times I found it difficult because I found myself in, in an extraordinary situation. I didn't get hurt, but I got, I came very close on many an occasion. People just looked at me just to give me a whack, just for bragging rights. I whacked Wheatley. And I had to work with the, the boys in blue to get, to get me through this sometimes. I mean, you know, um, I, I saw some dreadful things happen in prison. I didn't offend anybody. I didn't look at anybody. I just did my own thing while I was inside. But gee whiz, it was tough, mate. And it was, it was tough for me when I came out too. I, I went through a period of time where I couldn't go into crowds of people. I, I'd have anxiety attacks. I guess you could have post-traumatic stress. I was... I was a mess. I couldn't do it. It was people like John Farnham that basically got me going, mate, you can do this. You can do this. God, you've been through everything in your life. And we went out and we, we toured. I mean, it's 10 years ago now. And I'm not scarred, but I occasionally wake up sometimes at night with what I call the willies. Oh, still thinking of there's nothing worse than being locked up every night in lockdown. Not pleasant at all. But mate, I'm stronger for it. I was an idiot to take the advice that I did, but I did, and I got out. Farnham was one of many Wheatley supporters during the darkest time of his life. He put his career on hold while Wheatley was out of action, then picked up again when he was released. Likewise, Wheatley remained fiercely protective of his best friend John Farnham and his music, especially a song he only half-jokingly called the National Anthem. When You're the Voice started to be used by Reclaim Australia activists, Wheatley insisted they cease and desist. Farnham would perform the song with everyone from Coldplay to Celine Dion, as well as taking his career outdoors, playing everywhere from wineries to music festivals. When the pandemic put Farnham's touring on hold, Wheatley kept working, just like always. I can't sit down. I, I can't imagine ever retiring. I mean, I can't imagine it. Over the past two years, he'd been working on both a musical based on Farnham's songs as well as a documentary on the singer's life. However, Wheatley's own life had enough highs and lows for a movie of his own. Aside from the millions of albums and concert tickets sold, Wheatley was most proud of his family. His wife, Gaynor, an actor, became his life and business partner. They had two daughters, 
Samantha and Cara, and son Tim, who followed Glenn into the music business. This episode was researched and written by Cameron Adams, audio production by Mike Santos, produced by Tate McGregor. Listener Production.